Hey everybody, welcome to the Poetry Space. Today we're going to be talking about the beats. Mark Donowski was in first, beating even my esteemed co-host. So congratulations on that one. I see Carla Schwartz is here and on writing. It's great to see you guys. I'm going to add you as speakers right now. And I am super excited to get into this so much so that I am doubly caffeinated. I am sitting here with a double espresso and a huge green tea because there's a lot we have to talk about, Tim. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. I am well caffeinated and excited to get into this. So I'm surprised to learn that you're not like a huge fan off the bat of the beat. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's one of those things where I probably should be the more that I think about it, but I never really got into the beats. But before we talk about that, let's start with an opening poem. Don't you want to do that? I want you to do that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I wanted to get more into uh, Michael McClure for a long time. I've never really read him uh, because E. Paul Nelson talked at length in an interview, I think maybe over beer, over how much uh, Michael McClure meant to him uh, years ago. And I kept thinking, oh, I got to read more Michael McClure. And I always forget about it. So uh, this was an opportunity to do that. And I like this poem too. This is Mexico seen from a moving car and it's not too long, which is important too. Mexico seen from the moving car. There are hills like shark fins and clods of mud. The mind drifts through in the shape of a museum, in the guise of a museum, dreaming dead friends, Jim, Tom, Emmett, Bill. Like billboards, their huge faces droop and stretch on the walls, on the walls of the cliffs out there, where, the, where trees with white trunks make plumes on rock ridges. My mind is fingers holding a pen. Trees with white trunks make plumes on ridges. Rivers of sand are memories. Memories make movies on the dust of the desert. Hawks with pale bellies perch on the cactus. Their bodies are portholes to other dimensions. This might go on forever. I am a snake in a tiptoe feather at opposite ends of the scales as they balance themselves against each other. This might go on forever. There's a quicker poem by Michael McClure. And I was thinking about it, Katie. So it does seem like I should be a huge fan of the beats. I love the sort of uh, meditative just riffing that they do. And that, that whole thing is what I like about poetry. But the thing is this. I, I encounter the beats and I say TLDR. It's just they're too long. And it's the same thing with Whitman. I, uh, you know, I come across, I, I want to go read Whitman. And I'm just like, God, these lines are so long. It's so intimidating. It's a wall of text. And so I never got into the beats because of that, because, you know, I read Howell and I've read, you know, Ginsburg's America and, you know, some of Kerouac and some of Ferlinghetti, but just not much. Because every time I try to dive in, they just, they just, it's a wall of text. So what do you think about that? And you like short poems too. So how are you a Beats fan? <laughs> what I think is hysterically funny because I'm always the one like, I'll say like, oh, that poem was too long. And Tim, you'll be like, how long was it? I'll be like, almost a page. <laughs> Like, it's not, nobody else thinks it's too long but me. But here's what I have to say, okay? First of all, Howl, which is a super freaking long poem, it is not my favorite poem, for sure, of the Beat Generation. But all of this, what they were doing was so important on levels that kind of even transcend poetry. So a big thing I want to talk about today is, um, like, and partially, it's probably is the reason why I fell in with the Beats back in college 85 billion years ago, was because I love their their insistence on free speech. And so one thing that happened a lot with them is they were constantly being charged with obscenity, you know, for um, for publishing these things. And Howell was a huge deal with that. 
It was a landmark obscenity trial decision. And part of what, you know, really just made the beat generation happen and become a thing because the obscenity trial was just huge news everywhere. It was covered in like Playboy magazine, like imagine a poem, you know, getting coverage in Playboy magazine and how exciting that must have been. Yeah, that is one of the things I always think about as far as a publisher goes, though, is because Howell, you know, less than a thousand copies were printed. It was just a typical poetry book like we would have now until the obscenity trial. And then, you know, of course, it blew up and it's everywhere and there's movies after it and everybody's heard about it. It's the most famous poem in a long time, you know, since Shakespeare, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, City Lights says that they uh, sold over a million of the City Lights, the pocket poet series, which is probably the one everybody has. And also, like, we should say, too, if you're not familiar with how it looks, like, that was a big a big thing for poetry, this idea of having a poetry book that was small enough to fit in your pocket, even despite the lines and the poems themselves being a rather epic meal size. Now, let's see. I think George has his hand up already. I'd be curious to see what he wants to talk about, too. And good use of the raising the hand function early in the game, George. Oh, thanks. I was, I was thinking ahead this time. Um, so I just wanted to I just want to say since we touched on the topic of obscenity and and uh, sort of shocking the uh, the reader or, or, or perceived attempts at shocking the reader, this is actually what turned me away from the beats. It, it's 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 the kind of thing where I like the surrealism of a lot of their imagery, um, and I like how they jump around a lot and and make interesting contrasts. But for my, for myself, my own personal feeling, I just got tired of of you know, feeling like they're attempting to shock me all the time. And it just, it just got old. It just, that's just my, my own personal opinion. I don't know how other people feel about that. Um, but I definitely respect the genre. It's just not one of my favorites. Yeah, Katie, how much of that is part of what the beats were doing? Because in my impression of it, and you should explain what, uh, why they're called the beats too. I understand it has to do with the beatitudes, but that's something else I never really understood. But, but what I did love always was the, the, the automatic writing almost process where it was just spitting out stuff, which is what I enjoy doing with poetry. And there's a sort of like oracle nature of poetry that you can really get into when you write like that. Um, and so that's the thing that I think is cool. But, but why is it called the beats? And, and what is what they, were they trying to shock too? That's something I just have no idea. I think they were definitely trying to shock intentionally. I mean, also just once somebody tries to arrest you for writing something bad, it's just a natural impulse to write more and more bad things and see, like, just push it as much. I mean, in terms of protest, I think, you know, you could almost make the case that that is, that is the context that's creating meaning is through, through the sort of offensiveness of it. Um, nowadays, we take that for granted and think, well, oh, this person's just trying to be offensive. But back in the time they were doing it, I think part of the reason why we're able to see it as cliched now is because they fought that battle for us. You know, so now we get to go off of that and say, like, being offensive for offensive sake is, is not art. Um, a lot of times, though, I think that, you know, with Allen Ginsberg, you know, he was he was protesting everyone's, you know, views of his homosexuality as not being okay. And that was a big part, a big part of why he was putting forth a lot of the very graphic images that he does in Howl. And so that was a battle he was fighting. So it wasn't just a battle of how can I write the best poem? They were really fundamentally shaping the ability of, of free speech, you know, to continue. But also to talk about with what being a beat actually means, you know, it's about being beaten down, uh, the beats within 
within the actual poems also are referenced. And then, you know, you take that and then, you know, beat Nick and beat are used somewhat interchangeably, but I think that they're actually referring to different things with beat Nick being a spinoff of being a beat where beat Nick also references Sputnik and the cold war and everything that happened a bit later on in the period and um, their, their love of communism, which is an area in which I do disagree with him. So it doesn't, does it have to do with the Beatitudes or not? I just, that's one thing I like heard once and I was like, sure. And it's lodged as a fact in my head, but I don't even know. I think that it does, but I also think that Mark Donowski put his hand up and has an opinion that's probably more nuanced than my own on that. So go ahead, Mark. So it's it's not necessarily an opinion. It's more of, I think there's a lot of folklore surrounding what the beat movement was and why it was called that. Um, and one thing that I've heard a couple times is that um, it was called the beats because it was the sound that it makes when you're walking, like the sound of your boots, like the sound under your feet. And that like, I think it's supposed to be a statement about sort of working class mentality. Um, anyway, I'll leave it at that. But it's just interesting that there are a lot of opinions on this. Yeah, that definitely is. Thanks, Mark. And I mean, uh, one thing, too, that they do, of course, is have a kind of group with a manifesto and a sort of, you know, sense of that, which is what makes movements have power is that that something to label them with. So I think uh, we were talking earlier about um, how, you know, we need some movements now. We need some labels and we need some uh, some to call ourselves, maybe. Yeah, I think we do. We also need a six gallery reading like they had in 1955 because that that happened in San Francisco, uh, some purists that are like beat scholars that know like a billion times more about this than I do kind of consider if you read or you were present at the six gallery reading in 1955, then you, you know, can call yourself a beat or call yourself associated with it because that was basically the first group reading of beat poetry and that was when, at first, actually, Ginsburg didn't want to participate. But then, supposedly, like, just in time, he finished Towel, and he was like, screw it, I've got to read this out loud. And then he read it. And then the next morning, uh, Ferling Eddy, the publisher of City Lights Books, sent him a wire, which is hilarious to think we're talking about times when you sent someone a telegram, which I think is the same thing as a wire. <laughs> I'm not even totally sure. But he sent him a wire that said... Uh, I greet you at the beginning of a great literary career and wanted to publish Howell, which is the same thing that Emerson wrote to Walt Whitman, you know, like a hundred years uh, prior. So it looks like Doodle Slice has his hands up. So what would you like to add? Well, I was just going to add that uh, in addition to the beat having uh, an association with being beaten down and, and downtrodden, I, I think there was also an, a definite sense of beat in terms of rhythm uh, because there was an interest in finding genuine rhythms of life, of, you know, the American experience of, um, you know, urban living and, and, you know, trying to project that into the voice and the movement of the poem um, to, to kind of reject previous structures that had, you know, been going on before and I, I i think that's why there was uh an affinity with improvisational jazz and bebop and um 
you know, a general sense of, you know, a rejection of this kind of Eisenhower America conformity that was starting to feel, uh, you know, no longer like post-war optimistic, but, um, you know, restrictive and and suppressing. So I, I think those were all elements of, of what was going on. Yeah, that's super well said. I really agree with all of that, you know, coming from the perspective of, you know, there was this shift in America towards being more conventional and the beats totally just opposed that and, and smashed it open in so many ways, you know, talking about being anti-capitalist in a time where, you know, everyone was, was touting the, the major benefits of American capitalism. So I just, I really respect the whole devotion to saying things that were against the mainstream at the time. I think nowadays people, what we like to do in general is pretend like we're saying something controversial and it's not actually controversial for the most part, but the beats were really saying things that were challenging people to think in different ways um, in part because of their interest in Eastern philosophies uh, as well as hallucinogens. They, they were certainly spicy, um, <laughs> but I think, I think what we need to do now is I'm going to put Tim on the spot and force him to read some Howl. It feels like we can't have a space about the beats without reading a little bit of Howl. Tim, is that fair? Well, what should I read? It's so damn long. <laughs> and I hate the first line, <laughs> which is also, I love Howl too. I, I like the, uh, the um, I don't know, the transcendent sort of riffing that goes on in it. But but the, but the first line, uh, and maybe it's as an editor because I that that line is in so many submissions. You know, I saw the best minds of my generation, and then they start off with some new, you know, twenty first century version of it. So, <laughs> but what should no, I read? Don't Why hate we start the player. The don't hate the player. Hate the game. <laughs> no, wait. Hate the hate the game. I don't know where that analogy goes. But don't blame Ginsburg for people riffing terribly on Ginsburg. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So should I start yeah. at the beginning? I don't even know. What do you want I to read? I think you should because me not being a poetry writer editor and I haven't read this eight thousand times. I actually love the opening. So please go ahead. <laughs> All right. Okay. Hey, well, howl for, for Carl Solomon. One, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo and the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollowed-eyed and sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz who bared their brains to heaven under the l and saw mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating arkansas and blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war who were expelled from the ac ac academies of crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of a skull who cowered in unshaven rooms and underwear burning their money in wastebaskets and listening to the terror through the wall who got busted in their public beards returning through Lorado with a belt of marijuana for New York who ate fire and paint hotels and drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death and purgatory their torsos night after night with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning and the mind leaping toward poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between peyote, solidities of halls, backyard green tree cemetery dawns, wine drunkenness over rooftops, storefront burrows of tea head joyride, neon blinking traffic lights, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusks of Brooklyn, ash can rantings and kind 
king light of mind who chained themselves to subways for endless ride from battery to holy bronx on benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down shuddering mouth wrapped battered bleak of brain all drained of brilliance in the dreary light of zoo let's just stop there because it's so long Katie. <laughs> i think that was a good place to start but like <clears throat> How do you think, honestly, if you had never, you know, read this poem and you received like that as a submission, what would you think? Oh well, I, I think I think it's very original, and and the the rhythm is great, and the the image. I just love the way it moves. I really do. I like the freedom of um, expression and the stream of consciousness. And and like I said before, I love the like what I love about poetry is the way it. It's like a, it conjures some kind of magic and, and it sort of sees the future and the past and time sort of becomes suspended. And there's a great way that that happens. And um, you mentioned you had an essay or no, you mentioned somehow you have a theory maybe of Blake coming through um, through Whitman to uh, to Ginsburg or something like that. And I meant notice Blake was mentioned there as well. So, so what is that? There's some kind of ecstatic thing that's going on that you can really feel in the words. And we've published poems like this kind of in rattle, a little more tight, not as, as long and disorganized as uh, Howell. But uh, some of my favorite poets in rattle or, or poems in rattle are like this. But, um, but what is that connection to Blake that you see? Well, first of all, you know, uh, Ginsburg had a time where he had kind of hallucinations about, about Blake that he wrote about that were, I believe, homoerotic in nature, too. Um, for me, too, I see the connection as actually I want to read uh, my favorite Blake poem um, because I think the connection between that and Howell to me is really apparent. And luckily, it's not as long because Blake was a little bit, you know, he had to rhyme. So he had to put a little more thought into things. So. Yeah, sure. You take Blake and give me the long one. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. You're the one who had to say the bad words. My mom is in the audience, Tim. We have to behave. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is London by William Blake. I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe, and every cry of every man and every infant's cry of fear and every voice and every band, the mind forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls and the hapless soldiers sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlots curse, blast a newborn infant's tear, tear, and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So as I see it, those poems are extraordinarily similar, actually, in terms of Ginsburg is looking at, you know, in his time, a modern, desolate America, which was not the America being presented or thought of in the rest of the world, you know, I think is fair to say at that time. Whereas uh, also with this poem with London, this was an incredibly like crazy poem to have out there in a time when William Blake did this in like the late 1700s. And actually what he's talking about at the end with the blights and plagues of the marriage hearse, he's talking about syphilis, which is about as close as you could get to discussing a venereal disease in public at that time. And so I think he drew a lot uh, from that, whereas Blake also drew from Whitman, which Whitman was a tremendous influence on Ginsburg, even appearing um, in poems directly, such as in a supermarket in California. So I think, uh, let's see, Mark Zanowski, you'd like to say something about this too. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about the through lines uh, from the different poets. I think it, it's interesting that Blake came up um, 
in that context uh, and after hearing Kim read some of Hal uh, does sort of there's a sort of sprung rhythm kind of thing from uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins that maybe carries through a lot of this um, and Hop- Hopkins was a favorite of my mother's and uh, lots of people of that generation um, and you were just talking about America and uh, of course that's a well-known Ginsburg poem and we just started uh, Pride Month, and it, it feels notable uh, and important to mention that uh, that was obviously a strong interest of Ginsburg in the Beats, and his poem America ends with the, the classic well-known line of putting his queer shoulder to the wheel, uh, which a lot of people have read various different ways. Um, anyway, there's, yeah, I just feel like this goes in so many directions, and you can think about sort of how, like, earlier movements, um, you know, through, like, the American poetry dynasty of, like, Dickinson, Whitman, and Edgar Allan Poe off to the side, uh, leading into, you know, sort of uh, other modes and the confessional mode, and then, uh, you know, Beats and the New York School and how this is sort of just carried through time. Um, Anyway, yeah, lots to think about. Yeah, the thing that interests me about um, the connection to Blake is that idea of poet as prophet, which, you know, Blake had visions and saw himself as. And there's something, I love the the section where, um, in section two of Howell, where the sort of military industrial complex is described as Moloch. And, um, you know, the, there's there's something really interesting that I've always wondered about. And that's that if anybody is, knows conspiracy history type stuff, uh, there's the Bohemian Grove up in Northern California, where all the elites, the oligarchs, the bankers, and the oilmen all get together every summer, and have been for decades, going back to I think the 20s. Um, and the beginning is this cremation of care ceremony. It's actually why Alex Jones, of all people, uh, became famous for us. He snuck in there and videotaped this cremation of care ceremony, where they do a, uh, a mock sacrifice to this owl god, who's a, a formation of Moloch. Um, it's, and it's the sort of get rid of all your worries and have this big party. And that's where like the, you know, all the, you know, Rockefellers and all those type people sort of party and talk about the future of the world. And, um, and so to, to have Moloch in this long riff uh, describe that, that kind of um, emergent oligarchy that, um, you know, that, um, you know, Carol Quigley would talk about in Tragedy Hope and things later. Um, it's, it's embodied as Moloch and then have these lines like Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are 10 armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo, you know, and it goes on like this about Moloch, Moloch, Moloch as like the military industrial complex is what he's talking about. It's just such a powerful, interesting thing that seems like visionary in a way, like how could he have known and made that connection unless there was some kind of weird thing going on. And so I think that's fascinating. Um, what do you, what do you think about that Katie? Do you think, I, I wonder, cause it is near San Francisco. I wonder if he went there or heard rumors about it and knew about it or, um, you know, Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone, Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks. I mean, that is, that is the, um, you know, what, what we would call maybe inverted totalitarianism of, of the current corporatocracy. Um, so, so how did he know that? What do you think Katie? Was it the peyote? Well, <laughs> it could have been, but I actually have a very, specific idea where he pulled Moloch from 
which is that, so that was the essay that I super embarrassingly wrote in college and then put on Kindle Direct, which I can't take down because I don't even know what email was like created to, uh, to post it on there. But basically, I think that uh, Kenneth Rexdrop, who's uh, a beat that was thought of as being kind of like the grandfather of the beats, he's a little bit older than them and sort of thought of as being uh, slightly on the fringe. He was, I believe he was one of the hosts of the Sixth Gallery reading as opposed to somebody who actually read. But he had uh, this poem called Thou Shall Not Kill that was published or I don't know, actually, very pointedly, it was not published. It was made just for his beat friends. And he sent around, like, he made copies and sent them around to his friends with, like, very clearly on it, not for publication. And he referenced Moloch in it. And um, not only that, but I actually think much of Ginsburg's Howell, because I went on this total nerd deep dive of both pieces long ago, but so deep that I still remember how deep it went. Um <laughs> And Moloch was pulled, I think, from Thou Shall Not Kill, as was some of the rhythms of Howell that I think actually should be credited to Kenneth Rexrock. So one thing that Ginsburg called antiphonal river versus staccato. So that's like when, um, you know, when he does this thing where he does a bunch of single word uh, exclamations and then a long lyric line. And that was something that I think it's fair to say, at least for my research, wasn't seen very much at all consistently until, until Kenneth Rexroth's poem, Thou Shall Not Kill. And I think Ginsburg copied it. I think it's very suspicious if you look at Ginsburg annotated Howell that talks about where he pulled various things from. It doesn't mention Rexroth at all, even though this was a poem that he got while he was working on Howell. So it's very suspicious to me, honestly. Did, did you find any uh, commentary of Rex Roth on Howell? Did he, did he talk about it all in anything that you could find? No, but what I did find was, was that supposedly, like this is like this, the weirdest thing. I found like when I was searching through my email, some professor of mine telling me from somewhere that I couldn't find a source of that once in a cab in Japan, Ginsburg admitted he stole it. That was as close as I got and seems a bit gossipy to be referencing some sort of thing that actually matters. <laughs> yeah, well, well, if he just stole it, then that kind of ruins my, my uh, theory that it's a, a vision of uh, some kind of future from a peyote trip, it I guess. Could have, that, it could have been Rex Roth. Yeah, it could have been Rex Roth on the, on the Hiawaska. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Ginsburg got on it. But it, it could be that. I mean, they were in San Francisco a lot. We know that much. You know, let's bring it. Let's bring a conspiracy theory uh, documentary in for the <laughs> for the assignment. I think next. Let's do it. But let's uh, let's see. Doodle slice and Mark seem to want to comment. Doodle, doodle slice. What do you have to say about that? Well, I was going to say I think that uh, some of his choice to use Moloch is from the uh, Jewish background. Uh, you certainly uh, studied Talmud and. Um, you know, the, there's the whole idea of the prohibition of giving one seed to Moloch. Um, and that, you know, maps to a lot of ideas about, you know, homosexuality being sub rosa in the culture, as well as, uh, you know, the idea of secret societies and, you know, power structures. And uh, there's a whole, you know, religious element about, you know, going back to, um, you know, pre-Christian times about Moloch as, um, 
you know, giving sacrifice to Moloch. So I, I doubt that he stole it. Uh, I, I think there was also in that time a lot of conversation happening between these figures. I mean, they were a tight knit group living on each other's couches some of the time. And so, it, you know, topics, you know, the idea of a topic moving from one to another seems very natural and organic through the types of conversations they were likely having. Well, that's a very good point. I just find it very interesting, too, though, that Ginsburg has the fully annotated howl that, to be fair, I read like 15 years ago now, but it didn't mention Rex Roth when it was mentioning, you know, other people directly, which means a little bit like he wanted the distance in a way that uh, seems a bit sus. As the kids say. Well, we got, we got two conspiracy theories going, I guess. <laughs> we need more. Let's bring them on, people. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, uh, Carla Schwartz wanted to talk, too. She had her head up a little before. She wanted to move on to uh, other beat poets. And there's one anecdote that I love that I always think of from, uh, from Alan Ginsberg. I can't remember who told me this, but when they were a student, like, in the early 80s at some college, um, you know, Anne Waldman, who was another beat poet, but a, a woman beat poet, um, had just come out with some book. I can't remember what the details were about it, but it was a little a little divergent from what she'd been writing before. And so this poet I was interviewing had gone up as a, as a young poet to uh, Ellen Ginsberg in a reading and said, hey, what do you think of Anne Waldman's new book? You know, it's it's really different. And apparently Ginsberg said, um, um, I don't know what she's doing now, but I'm all for it. And I just love that uh, that feeling of um, not, you know, not knowing what poets are doing, but being all for it regardless. And, um, you know, so... That's the kind of uh, spirit I try to think about when it comes to poetry, um, you know, to, to just be all for it and not be uh, not be so critical and, and judgmental of what people are doing. Well, that's totally how I feel about poetry. So I admire that. And yeah, Carla, we'd love to hear from you now. Um, yeah, so that's a cool uh, segue, Tim, because um, the little article that I read about the women, because right now we've all had this long conversation mostly about Ginsburg and them. Somebody mentioned uh, Lou Welch in the um, in the comments. But, um, you know, so we're talking a lot about the men. And it seems like when people try to think about the beat generation, you think about Ginsburg and all the men. And then there were some women in the in the um, considered to be beat poets. But uh, apparently the, you know, sort of bohemian lifestyle that was associated with being a beat poet was diff more difficult for women uh, for various reasons. And um, and uh, so that was part of, you know, that. And there was apparently a lot of sexism. So hearing that comment that Ginsburg made was kind of interesting because that's uh, antithetical to this uh, uh, article that I came across that said that there was, uh, you know, quite a bit of sexism in, from the perspective of the men toward the women. And uh, so some of the women that are associated with the beat generation are actually the spouses and girlfriends. But um, there were a few, Ann Waldman being one, and then Diane De Prima, even Denise Levertov is considered uh, to be um, a beat, and also um, another Diane. Um, and I'm, so I'm going to read, I'm going to read this one by Diane Wachowski, which is called The Story of Richard Maxfield. He jumped out of a window, or did he shoot himself? Was there a gun, or was it pills? Did anybody, did anyone see blood? Was he holding water in his lungs? Or was he right about the CIA conspiracy and killed 
and killed by one of them because he knew their plans. Richard was an electronic composer. He wrote a piece called Cough Music made up of the coughs of hundreds of people at concerts. He was brilliant and well-organized. And then he fell apart. He was homosexual and took drugs. He was brilliant and well-organized. I loved cough music and could not see how such a fine composer could fall apart as Richard fell apart. That is the story of Ma Richard Maxfield. He died in California. It did not make me sad that he died as he fell apart. We all die. We do not all fall apart. Cough music was a beautiful piece of music. I went to a concert tonight and heard many people coughing, especially during the encore, which was a piano piece by Debussy. And that's that poem. Um, and uh, let me see if I can find a, another one, a short one. Um, well, you look, I'll tell you a funny thing about uh, Dan McCoskey. We um, interviewed her in Rattle way back before I was here, actually. But we published her regularly ever since. And maybe 10, 15 years ago, I started getting submissions from someone called Diane Witkowski, um, which is sort of similar in, in a name, but very long with tons of extra letters. They came from a P.O. box and we published one of the poems. And um, I, I started to wonder if it maybe might be Diane Witkowski, like doing a, a, a sort of a weird pen name experiment. And I look it up and, sh and whoever this is was from P.O. box, like 30 miles from Diane Witkowski's house. So I think she might have uh, been sort of trying to see if her poems would be published without her name or something like that. It was really, really interesting, but uh, a little anecdote there. <laughs> That's when you know you've made it as a poet. I will never be trying to do that, I feel like. If I'm ever like, oh, I better, could I make it without my name? That's a real nice yeah. situation. I mean, she's definitely the kind of person that would do that kind of thing. I, I've talked to her a few times on the phone, and, and she's really cool. I like her a lot. Um, so I was going to read one more poem by Diane De Prima, which is uh, Song for Baby-O Unborn. Sweetheart, when you break through, you'll find a poet here. Not quite what you would choose. I won't promise you'll never go hungry or that you won't be sad on this gutted breaking globe. But I can show you, baby, enough to love to break your heart forever. And that's that. So, uh, sorry, I'm going to shut up. Go ahead. No, Jeff, I was just going to encourage you to keep talking because I just was going to say those were excellent picks and such a nice anecdote to the man heavy 85,000 word poems we're looking at today, generally, too. So thanks for sharing that, Carla. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having this space here today. It's really interesting. Oh, good. It seems that, too, we've managed to Tim Dick Westheimer to join us as a speaker. I know he had a very busy day, but he also is saying in the comments, uh, something that I thought was really interesting as someone who was a teenager in the 1960s. So, Dick, I think that you adding yourself as a speaker means that you're able to talk. But if you are, I'd love to hear your perspective. And thanks for making the time when you're busy today. Well, I, I just couldn't stay away after. Uh, and thank you for this. This has been really fascinating discussion. I wish I had more time to, and attention for it. But Carla's um, interjection reminded me of this hideous interview with Charlie Rose and Allen Ginsberg and Sharon Olds back celebrating um, uh, Walt Whitman, something about Walt Whitman. And Sharon Olds is a real student of this and has some really interesting things to say. 
And the men in that conversation shut her down. She got about 10% of the uh, uh, 10% of what should have been her 30% of the contribution to the conversation. And it was just stunning how, how these men treated her. And, you know, of course, I know Sharon Olds is this like bold and, you know, and, you know, incredibly um, groundbreaking poet. And, and I just wanted to hear more from her. But Allen Ginsberg would not let her get a word in edgewise, nor would, of course, Charlie Rose, who we now know more about. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is what I wrote in that chat, which is in the six. I, I wasn't into poetry, but I was into the music and the movements of the 60s. And we felt a great debt of gratitude towards the beats for the comedy and music that was sort of the heartbeat of, of our generation and of the political movements. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was very clear that these things did not arise out of nothing. Um, and even though I, you know, I was ahistorical and not had studied things very well, we, we at least knew um, to whom we owed um, the, the um, um, you know, our, our, our capacity to uh, listen and speak uh, the things that we did. What is it like for you when you look back at, you know, with some of the poems we've been looking at in this space today? Does it kind of take you back to that time? Or is it like interesting to be able to have a little bit of a space to reflect upon it? And does it help you see things differently or remember, I guess, to some extent what it was like and how far I think we have come as a country since then? Well, well uh, keep in mind, you know, I'll, I'll sort of repeat what I said is by the time I came of age, the transition had already taken place. Right. So we were continuing to be transgressive, but we were not transgressive without some sort of permission set. Right. These people had no permission set. So we, we had, all, you know, all of this context of, um, you know, I, I think the iconic um, um, song that sort of speaks to that is Dylan's The Times They Are Changing. And so I don't have that context of how. You know, I have a lot of context for how how retrograde things were in the '60s, but not in terms of transgressing those social norms. That that had been done, and that's what we were grateful for, um, or at least acknowledged. Um, but no, I the first time I read a lot of this poetry was in the last five years. So, it's not none of it is none of the poetry is history for me, or it's all history for me. None of it was you know currently lived. Well. That's really interesting. And then I wanted to say, too, one name that I don't I think we've managed to make it this far into the space without anyone saying Jack Kerouac, which is kind of amazing. We wouldn't be doing well if we were playing Beats Bingo at this point. But uh, I was hoping that Mark Fitzpatrick Cries would be up for talking a little bit about Jack Kerouac. Obviously, he's the best known for having written On the Road, uh, but he also wrote Amazing Haiku, it turns out, which is new to me. Yeah. Hey, Katie. Um, so yeah, Kerouac is one that um, I came to through his haiku and actually through, um, I've got a very uh, deep interest in, in Buddhism and all its forms. And uh, I guess so did many of the beats and I guess him in particular. I haven't read Dharma Bums though. It's it's on my list, but On the Road was, um, uh, has a special place in terms of, of things that I've enjoyed um, because the prose is very poetic and I guess he was pretty well known for um, 
for for writing novels and kind of pioneering this this rambling prose style that uh to me like it those are the kind of novels that are in my wheelhouse that are just you know very poetic prose that take a lot of, of liberties so um but before i talk about kerouac though and something that that occurred to me as people were talking about moloch um that's actually a, a big term in uh in the crypto world so, which is where i'm kind of coming from where i guess they're kind of cribbing that from the beats and i guess the beats in turn are cribbing that from religion before them is that uh, in crypto it refers to the god of human coordination failure so there's this kind of idea uh in nfts and crypto of you know trying to to slay this uh this monster where it's um there's even uh DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations that are are built around this idea there's even one called moloch dao where they're they're giving grants for funding um, essential digital public goods. So I guess there's this, which I've got no involvement with this particular DAO, but I find it interesting that, um, you know, history kind of repeating itself. Like I guess the beats, um, as Dick was saying, they had no real permission set. They kind of carved their own path, but you know, that repeats in its own form, you know, in the current day. So, so anyway, um, so I wanted to read a little bit from On the Road. Um, there's a lot of kind of recognizable passages. I don't know if this is one, but I think it's my favorite from On the Road, um, just because he's got a knack for surprising metaphor. So it's uh, one sentence, but here it is. Soon it got dusk, a grapey dusk, a purple dusk over tangerine groves and long melon fields. The sun the color of pressed grapes, slashed with burgundy red. The fields the color of love and Spanish mysteries. So there's just something so beautiful to me about that. Uh, just being able to take a natural scene. And this has nothing to do with like the politics of their time or the you know, th- things that were going around in current events. Like This was just an, a human experience in the world, which... Uh, and kind of trying to express it in a way that was true to their their experience. And I, I find that, you know, just really beautiful. And um, I thought I'd read uh, three haiku. Of course, they're short. I guess this, this is the other end of the spectrum from the long rambling poems. Although I would say to Tim um, that uh, it's definitely worth uh, revisiting Leaves of Grass, like Whitman's prologue from Leaves of Grass, even though it's very texty, is just... Uh, it's a real treat, but uh, certainly something that can be a little bit uh, daunting looking at it now in the age of social media. It's definitely not my first choice to pull off the shelf, but very rewarding. So, But here are uh, three haiku that I really love from, from Kerouac. So the first one is, uh, is this. Nightfall. Boy smashing dandelions with a stick. Uh, the second one. Empty baseball field. A robin hops along the bench. And then finally, and I think Katie will uh, resonate with this one because it has an essential dash in the first line. Train on the horizon. My window rattles. And the thing about his haiku is that, um, and I don't know how much truth there is uh, in all of this because, you know, we're talking many, many years later and who knows who's taking liberties with writing, you know, with 2020 hindsight, but um, his haiku was supposedly 
um, well known for being uh, American haiku, quote unquote. So um, not, I guess, the strict Japanese form, but um, which I think if we look at the the Japanese masters, like there there wasn't a lot of formality to their best haiku either, in my opinion. But uh, Kerouac's haiku is kind of known for pioneering an American style of some sort where it's uh, very free of um, structure. And and I, uh, his definition was of haiku is that it's supposed to be very simple, free of trickery. And uh, a direct quote would be, and you make a little picture and yet be as airy and graceful as a Vivaldi pastorella, which I thought was uh, just a really great way of summarizing haiku, bit of a throwback to a, a past episode uh, of this uh, Spaces. So yeah, that's my little uh, bit about Kerouac. Yeah, I've always been a fan of Kerouac's haiku, and he does seem to be, like he respected the the transition that, that haiku and Jendai haiku made in, in Japan. So, you know, getting rid of the 575 and being a lot more loose after the uh, you know, postmodern revolution there. And so some of his haiku are just great. I love um, looking for my cat in the weeds. I found a butterfly. I mean, he's got so many like that that are just so, so great. Um, and yeah, so I've always been a fan of Kerouac's haiku, although I've never been on the road. Yeah, it's interesting to me because, you know, the things that I, I think that people get really passionate about with haiku, um, with thinking about gratitude and just like a real connection with you know the world around you so deep that you can kind of see these these juxtapositions pop out it seems to me very married with the whole beat philosophy you know with them trying to take life in sort of a a different a different pace than other people were doing um with like sort of balanced trying to be politically radical and fight against the things that mattered but also like be super chill and then write about that so it's so fascinating to me that kerouac can write you know, prose that, that are that are like his prose and then be amazing at writing haiku. Usually, at least in my experience, it's really hard to find the kind of writer that's super well-versed in both. And it's so easy for people to discount the beats, I think, and think of them as just bums, you know, and things like that, when the truth is they were incredibly highly educated people that were trying to use that knowledge to, to further literature, which I think that they managed definitely to do in a huge way. One thing we haven't talked about that I wanted to touch on before we get to Tim's performance of Bob Dylan that I'm making him play that I'm super excited about. It's just this concept of first thought, best thought, which uh, Joshua Eric Williams was referencing in the comments. And it's so funny to me because if you search like, well, who said first thought, best thought? I believe it's Ginsburg, but that's actually controversial because these people were, as Doodle Slice said, hanging out so much and around each other all the time such that, you know, quotes or what's attributed to, to which person can get kind of conflated between the two. But I think first thought, best thought, by and large, I do actually agree with, you know, this whole thing with I think poems can be largely over edited. And some of what we can seek to improve within poetry now is this over academic style of of breaking down poems until you almost try to beat the soul out of them, which was the opposite of what the beats were doing. Possibly they could have used a little more of that, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I completely agree with that. First thought, best thought, too. I mean, I hardly revise my poems at all. And I think there's something there's something to the messiness of the soul coming out, like you said. There's this this concept where uh, you know white noise adds to the perception of um, of a signal, and so if you have if you have extra noise in the system, you can actually hear it better. 
And I think the same thing happens with poems. And so first thought, best thought, even though it's messier, allows the heart to come through more or something like that in a way that just works better for, for me. And, and the poems that are, you know, so many times the poem we publish in Rattle, people submit a hundred over the years, you know, and the one we pick, they'll say, well, that's the one I wrote in one sitting in like five minutes. And, and that's just because, you know, poems just come out of you sometimes. And when they're not edited, there's a period of that that really works. So I do gravitate toward, uh, toward that concept. Well, that's part of why it was so interesting. And I had an ulterior motive, this whole space, to be honest, to convince you that you should like the beats. Because to me, Tim, like a lot of your poems seem like a continuation of the beat tradition. Like when you write these amazing train poems, like you did for the Rattlecast prompt last week, to me, a train poem is taking this first thought, best thought, and just running with it in a way where you are, you know, you're not writing poems that are 18 pages long but they're the same sort of momentum that I feel when I'm reading like the best parts of Ginsburg or one of these longer pieces. So I feel like a train, the train poems that you write have a basis that feels kind of beat to me. Well, you're kind of winning me over on the beats. I do, I do appreciate so much of their aesthetic. They just, they just, it's too long. I got time. I got work to do. <laughs> I have uh, not enough hours in the day for the beats, but, but I like what they're trying to do. All right. Let's see. <laughs> I do think that like, the best beat poems for me are like, so Sunflower Sutra is my, one of my ultimate top poems. And that's an example of a poem that is longer. Uh, by my standards, it's super long. By your standards, Tim, it's probably long, but it's not, you know, a book, not a book length poem. So there, there are ones. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a two and a half pager, I'd say, which is what everybody sends for the Rattle Poetry Prize. So it, it's up for that, Ginsburg, if you want to go back in time or forward or whatever. Doodle his hands up. I just want to say there are disagree. plenty of short beat poems. They're not all long, you know, book length uh, works. So you know, dig in. I know. I'm just I'm just messing with everybody. I mean, it's it's it is my. Um, it was what turned me off, but uh, but I'm kind of joking too at the same time. Yeah, it's just it's got to be hard once you have to look at people playing off the same thing and thinking they're clever every single time. Like I would hate that too. I think definitely. But with that being said, do you think I could get you to read the beginning of Sunflower Sutra? There's just one thing I want to talk about as a continuation um, of looking through time and through the evolution of Ginsburg and to the beats. Would you read? Yeah, sure. Just the, just the beginning. <laughs> the beginning, like, okay, I'll, I'll read a few, maybe the first four lines, which are actually like a page long. <laughs> Sunflower Sutra. I walked on the banks of the Tinkan Banana Dock and sat down under the huge shade of a Southern Pacific locomotive to look at the sunset over the box house hills and cry. Jack Kerouac sat beside me on a busted, rusty iron pole companion. We thought the same thoughts of the soul, bleak and blue and sad-eyed, surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees, of machinery. The oily water on the river mirrored the red sky. Sun sank on top of final Frisco peaks. No fish in that stream, no hermit in those mounts. Just ourselves, roomy-eyed and hung over like old bums on the riverbank, tired and wily. Look at the sunflower, he said. There was a dead gray shadow against the sky, big as a man, sitting dry on top of a pile of ancient sawdust. I rushed up, enchanted. It was my first sunflower, memories of Blake, my visions, Harlem and hells of the eastern rivers, bridges clanking, Joe's greasy sandwiches, dead baby carriages, black treadless tires forgotten and unretreaded, the poem of the riverbank, condoms and pots, steel knives, nothing stainless, only the dark, 
the dank muck of the razor-sharp artifacts passing into the past. Is that good? Yeah, I think you said you were only going to read a couple, but you couldn't contain your excitement, just kept going, which is, I can No, that was, that was four quote. lines. The, the lines are just like, it's, <laughs> the lines are each four lines long. <laughs> All right, so then I'm going to read this. So that what's interesting, too, is this is a direct callback from another poem by William Blake, which is only two quatrains, so it's an eight-line poem. But I just think it's super cool because that poem directly references this one called Ah, Sunflower by Blake. Ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow, arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. So Sunflower Sutra is completely a modern take on that. And then I had a further revelation when I was looking at this poem, which as you guys may have seen with my tweet, I had a really lucky thing happen to me where I, I bought another copy that's like a huge, thick Allen Ginsberg collected poems from like 47 to 1980 that I owned back in college. And then when I was in LA, I, so I buy way too many used books, guys, like way too many, because I love, like I prefer used poetry books because you find these, you know, you find the marginalia where somebody wrote something absolutely ridiculous and it just really makes me excited. It's like getting to read it by myself and with somebody else at the same time. But anyway, I opened this up and it had this crazy like flower drawing and an AH inside. And then I saw Allen Ginsberg's autograph in there. Like I bought this book for like 10 bucks or something. And what's really interesting to me is I just realized as I was looking at this, that this William Blake poem is called Awe Sunflower. And I think he puts awe inside of the sunflower because he's referencing this William Blake poem because he was so obsessed with Blake in part and because awe has meanings for Zen Buddhism as well. But I thought that that was kind of, kind of interesting. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah. I remember when you bought that book down in LA, like way back in February or something. So to finally find that now, it's such a cool thing. And then what a cool connection. Yeah. And it made no sense to buy it. Cause I like was going to have to carry it on my back for like two weeks or something, but I was like, I'm buying this. And then I opened it for the first time only like, you know, yesterday. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And so, it is really neat, too, to be able to read his poems from something that he touched and drew a sunflower inside of for me to enjoy here in 2023. So I think that, too, you're going to be doing not the closing poem, but the closing song for us. So something we haven't made it to yet in this space is talking about Bob Dylan as being a beat, which I believe he certainly counts as in part because of the fact that his ideologies are so tied in, in what the Beats believe. And he's, you know, possibly the most famous anti-war singer. I think it's, I think it's fair to say. I think I can just say possibly, get rid of the possibly, just say he is the most famous anti-war singer. And I also think, Tim, that you sound great playing Bob Dylan, as it turns out. Well, I don't know about that. But um, um, you, you asked me to play um, Tangled Up in Blue, but which is something I play with my kids sometimes, so I know that one. But then you mentioned that Subterranean Homesick Blues is actually after a beat. Uh, is it a Kerouac poem? I didn't know that. Can you explain that a little bit? I can't explain it great, but it's. Um, I think it's after a book by Kerouac uh, called The Subterraneans. And I haven't read that exact book, but it's based in part on that. And then uh, the feelings, you know, surrounding surrounding that and kind of like, it's also obviously about civil rights issues. So it's kind of taking more, you know, going further than the beats went, because this is, you know, later, 
Um, this song came out in 1965. Most of the stuff we're talking about was like 57 or so. I think Doodle Slice has a strong opinion on this song. So let's hear from well, him. Well, no, this was just on uh, the Subterraneans. It's, um, you, you mentioned First Thought, Best Thought before. This is a little novella that he wrote, I think, in three days on speed. He actually got teletype paper to put um, in his typewriter so he didn't have to put new pages in and it was just one shot right it through and we can imagine this long scroll uh things and i thought i think in part dylan was you know going to this uh word spaghetti um flow from you know some inspiration from there but i'd put dylan more beatnik than beat i put it more beat but i agree with everything else you said <laughs> I do. That's super interesting. And that makes me, I really respect the addition of like changing your paper to keep up with your writing. That is something that would make me feel super cool. So Tim, are you ready to regale us by playing? And thanks for agreeing to, I definitely like push for this, you guys. So we better give them a lot of heart. <laughs> yeah. Or, or blame Katie. Cause I'm really not a musician and I didn't know. I never knew. I always loved this song, but I never knew how to play it until this morning. So I looked up the chords <laughs> and, um, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to sound either. Can you, um, I don't know how it's going to pick up. There's no, uh, on the phone. Is, is this going to like max out and distort everything if I play like this? Let's see. Is that okay? That sounds good. Can you guys thumbs up if it sounds good for you too? <laughs> All right. Oh God. I was hoping. <laughs> I was hoping it wouldn't work. All right. So, uh, here's, here's my subterranean homesick blues, I guess. John's in the basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm the pavement, thinking about the government. Man in the trench coat, bad job laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck down the alleyway, looking for a new friend. The man in the coon skin, cap and pig pen, wants $11 bills. You only got 10. Face for the black suit, token and he hood plants in the bank book. Phones tapped anyway. Mega said, Man said, the must bust in the bank. Horse from the DA. Look out, kid. Something you did. Walk on your tiptoes. Don't tie no bows. Better stay away from those who care around a fire hose. Keep clean nose and wash with plain clothes. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Got losers, cheaters, six-time users Hanging around the theaters Girl by the whirlpools looking for a new fool Don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters Oh, get bone, keep on, short pants, romance Learn to dance, get dressed, get blessed Try to be a success, please sir, please him Buy gifts, don't steal, don't have Twenty years of school and then they put you on the day shift Look out, kid, big little hip They jump down the yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. No, it wasn't. You're not allowed to say it was terrible. Everybody loved that. It was great. It was fantastic. And it was a super beat way to close out the space, too. 
The only thing I insist on is you stop telling everybody why you can't play music. <laughs> like, why do you keep doing that? That was awesome. Well, uh, well, my daughter is like a brilliant musician. So every, the only time I play guitar is when she leads with vocals. So <laughs> I don't well, know. Don't, don't make that comparison. <clears throat> exist in your own space proudly. And this is the space. So thanks to you guys. Thanks for playing that, Tim. You sounded great. And it was uh, a really good riff. In fact, like the first time I ever heard you play the guitar, I said like, oh, you should do Bob Dylan. You'd be great at, at Bob Dylan stuff. And it turned out you'd already played him and stuff. So it worked out. And then I forced you to do it in this space to close it out today. So thanks so much for doing that. Well, that is really fun to play. And I should say, you know, Bob Dylan was one of the things that got me into poetry. And maybe that song in particular. Like it was reading reading Frost and reading Wallace Stevens and then listening to Bob Dylan and those lyrics and maybe want to have fun writing stuff. And so it kind of all comes back around, I guess. Yeah, I mean, his lyrics, you just, I mean, his lyrics are just incredible. I also saw when I was researching the space that you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blown, blows. It's the most quoted song lyric in, in court cases. Like, this is something that comes up a lot with just random trivia that I found personally amusing that makes me, like, picture this being spoken of in a court case. is very funny, and people are just like, yes, yes, Dylan. Like, very seriously. <laughs> so, thanks to you guys so much for everything. I learned a lot during this space. It was so interesting to hear everybody's perspective Thanks to all the speakers. You guys were super awesome today, and I really appreciate it. And happy early birthday to Ginsburg, who is having his birthday on June 3rd. And I don't know why I said that, but I did. So. <laughs> well, uh, my birthday is June 4th, so uh, a little bit of similarity there. I was going to say that, too. That's another reason why you should like the beats. The day before, I mean, I think it's fate. The train poems are, the train poems are coming, much like that awesome haiku that Cries read us, which I love. So thank you guys so much. Hope you have a great oh, wait, but next week, week, say next oh. week. What we got? Next. Oh, yeah. yeah. Next week, we are going to be talking about Rattle Issue number 80, which is a tribute to NFC poetry, of which the cover artist is a speaker in this very room right now, Mark Fitzpatrick. Spoiler alert. <laughs> That'll be a yeah, lot of fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's such a fun issue to put together, and it came out really well. If you haven't seen it yet, I think it, it all worked. And uh, thanks to, to Cries, of course, for the cover art, which is just beautiful, too. Yeah, it really is. And if you haven't seen it, Mark, I was going to tell you anyway, after this space, the Rattle site has your art all over it right now and looks beautiful. So it's cool to go check out as well. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. And uh, I guess we'll see everybody next week. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Have a beat-tipping day. Bye. Bye. <laughs>